Hello and welcome back to another episode of A Cozy Christmas Podcast. My name is Art. Well, I've had to do some rearranging of my episodes because we have some time-sensitive information we want to get out to you folks. But I have a guest on today, Mark Shanahan. He's the uh, playwright and author of the stage play, A Sherlock Carol. Longtime listeners of the show will know who Mark is. He first came on back in 2021 when A Sherlock Carol was first getting started. And now here we are two, three years later. It's starting to uh, be performed around the country and in England. I'm going to uh, go ahead and be quiet here and I'll play my interview with Mark Shanahan. Welcome back to uh, the Cozy Christmas Podcast. My guest today is a returning guest, uh, and he's the, uh, the the author of the stage play, uh, A Sherlock Carol, there we go, and many others. It's been a long day, Mark. <laughs> so, all right. I've had them too. <laughs> yes. Welcome back uh, to the Cozy Christmas Podcast. Thanks very much. I'm glad to be here with you again, Art. You bet. Yeah. Well, it's it's been a year. This is becoming something of a tradition. Um, I, and I've noticed, uh, as you've been sharing, that it looks like the Sherlock Carol is starting to kind of expand itself. So that's got to be exciting for you. It is exciting. Um, the play, uh, which is a combination of the worlds of Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes stories, and uh, and Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, in which a grown-up mm-hmm. Tiny Tim meets um, um, a dissolute Sherlock Holmes and hires him to solve the mysterious death of an Ebenezer Scrooge. We premiered it uh, two years ago, uh, as you recall, in 2021, in the midst of a pandemic still. I mean, who opens an off-Broadway play in the midst of a pandemic? But we did it, and it was met with great success. And that year, we didn't know. We didn't know how it would go. We opened it at New World Stages uh, and right in the heart of Times Square in the theater district. And uh, at a beautiful 500-seat theater that um, I'd been to many times, and it was a great thrill with an extraordinary cast of Broadway veterans. And uh, it was just such a thrill to be back after a year and more of, of sitting there wondering if the theater would ever be able to open its doors again. And our production that year had great um, success. It was nominated for a, a award from the Off-Broadway Alliance as Best Play and um, and also was a New York Times critics pick. And we brought it back the following year, and last year in 2022, but it also premiered in London last year at the Marylebone Theater, and it is back this year in its second year. But only this year was it published by Broadway Licensing, or also known as Dramatist Play Services. And so all these other theaters suddenly got to find it. It was published this April. And so this year there have been 14 productions around the country, uh, as well as returning in London, uh, and it's been really amazing for me. I directed it at the New York production as well as wrote it, but it's been crazy to see on Facebook and social media elsewhere, um, other people putting up pictures of their productions. And it's been such a thrill to realize that there are people out there all across the country in theaters reimagining it and doing it their own way and coming up with the characters the way they'd like to do it. And I get such a great kick out of it. And we're just getting word that it was only published in April of this year, as I say, that um, it's really taking off and some other theaters will be bringing it around the country next year as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's growing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> well, I was going to ask, 
um, this is mostly just curiosity, but yeah. Uh, so if if a production wanted to do your play, how do they go about doing that? I, um, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's it's because it's published by Dramatist Play Service. You can um, find the uh, the rights you, if you just purchase the play. You find a little thing in the beginning of it that says, "Here's the contact," and you purchase the rights for however many performances you're going to do it, in and however big a uh, theater it is, and according according to whether it's amateur or or professional or school play, there are different rates and all that. I, I gather, but I don't know too much about that side of it. Okay, but um, but right there in Dramatist Play Service, just like every other play that you know of, um, you can just license the rights, and and any theater can do it anywhere in the country. Yeah. All right. So even a uh, like a, uh, a community theater type. Absolutely. Location. I'm glad to yeah. say there are a lot. So there's even a high school doing it that sent oh, wow. me their program this year, which was a great kick. Um, wow. but, um, and then, you know, there are friends in professional theaters that I know who are also doing it in, uh, Florida rep just closed last night. Actually, uh, they don't run until Christmas. They just finished their run and they had sellout crowds and they were doing great down there. And then I hear of, a community theater somewhere also doing really well. They sent me pictures uh, of their production and they said, we sold out too. So I'm just having the the biggest thrill and the biggest kick seeing all the different kinds of theater makers and the kinds of theaters from professional to non-professional to uh, the, the London production to uh, a high school. It's just such a great kick to imagine all that happening. Mm, yeah. Uh, is it also, uh, well, I guess, how are you, at seeing other people, you know, take over your creation. <laughs> like I'm that. really, honestly, I'm really, really good at it. At it. Yeah, I mean, good. I loved making it. And in fact, you know, I want to tell you that our, our New York cast and design team um, are all joining me for another production of it that I'm directing right now. And I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But mm -hmm. the truth of the matter is that my goal here isn't that I'm the only person who does it. My goal is to put it out there in the world and see what happens when other people take a, their turn at it. And so the production that I just mentioned down in Florida rep sent me pictures where they have a live piano player on stage accompanying it. Whereas I have recorded sound from my wonderful sound designer, John Gramada. And mm -hmm. I just love the thought that the play can be done in so many different ways, different permutations. Um, it can be cast any number of ways. And although the play was written for six actors, I write in the preface, these six actors play multiple roles or four of them. And it could be done by a cast of 20-something if you want. It can be, um, you know, as small or as large as you want it. So it's we're, it's, a, it's an agreeable play for different kinds of theater companies to be able to do in different ways. And I get a kick out of it. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 So you're, you're getting to direct um, a couple of... Uh, uh performances you said then well the the london production still bears my name on it in the second year because i went over there and directed it last year and okay. i have a wonderful associate director who's put it in this year with mostly the same cast a couple of cast changes with some wonderful new actors who we auditioned and just have jumped right into it and it's being really well received over there um but uh in the past year uh, kind of in a, a, a the big event in in my life is i actually took a job although i live in new york city i, I took a job as artistic director, um, uh, which is the job in which you're the leader of a theater um, in terms of programming and keeping the artistic side of its life healthy, uh, mm -hmm. of a very wonderful theater that I've worked at for nearly 20 years called the, West, the Westport Country Playhouse in Westport, Connecticut. 
And it's only an hour's train ride from um, Manhattan, uh, from Grand Central, which is uh, easy enough and actually gives me a little bit of time to think sometimes in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, but because we're only 40 or 45 miles from Broadway, we often are able to call on some of the best actors in New York City to come on up and do a play, do a reading, do a concert. And the Playhouse itself has had an extraordinary history that I'd love to tell you a little bit about. Mm-hmm. But the important and great thing that I'm sure for <laughs> considering the title of your podcast is that um, this year, instead of doing it in New York City, uh, because I've taken this job at the Playhouse, I called on everyone from the New York production and I said, listen, the Playhouse, which had been like so many nonprofits struggling in this past year, um, is getting on its feet and there's a new kind of energy about the place and we need to do some family friendly shows. We need to put something in that people don't expect. And I asked everyone involved in the New York production if they would um, jump on the train and come on up and and do a Sherlock Carol at the Playhouse. And within 30 minutes of my putting that email out, Everyone wrote back and said, absolutely, absolutely, uh, we'll be there. And every one of them, not only are they all Broadway veterans of my cast, but they're also Playhouse veterans. I've dragged them up there as a director for for some work at times. So they have a great love of the place as well. Uh, Our design team, um, we have, although we have a new set designer, my old set designer, the wonderful Ana Luizos, uh, donated some of the pieces from our New York production to say, of course, you've got to use them. Of course, you've got to keep going. And our new set designer from for the Playhouse, James Fenton, did a beautiful job putting his stamp on it. So we have a kind of a combination of those designers. Linda Cho, award-winning uh, costume designer, um, Tony Award-winning Broadway costume designer, um, who did our New York production, has all of our costumes in storage and ready to go for us right now. And Gramada, our wonderful Broadway's best sound designer um, was just at Playhouse, the Playhouse with us doing tech and even making changes this year to make it even better as we put all this together with the new lighting designer, Ali Doherty as well. And so we are up there uh, and have a run of the Sherlock Carroll at the Westport Country Playhouse um, starting tomorrow night through this week. It's only a one week run, but we're mm-hmm. able to have student matinees, something we never had in New York, which is making me thrilled. And we are practically sold out in our 575 seat historic, historic 94-year-old institution, the Westport Country Playhouse, which is such a thrill. Yeah. Oh, man, that's got to be so exciting for you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it is. It feels like so many things came together to make this happen in such an incredible way. Uh, Let's see. So the the actors involved for you then are the ones that have been the last couple of years and and I, yeah, I think- and the ones who couldn't come, yeah, Drew McVitie, who is also one that's, of our producers in New York, but he's a Broadway veteran of, God, I can't even mm-hmm. tell you how many Broadway shows he's done. Um, he played Sherlock Holmes for us. Alan Gilmore, our Scrooge, actually is up the road at Hartford Stage playing Scrooge in a Christmas Carol this year, uh, <laughs> in a regular traditional Christmas Carol. So we lost him, though he keeps writing us and saying, how's it going down there? So there's a yeah. great sense of camaraderie. And any of the actors who, uh, who we, we couldn't... Um, Uh, have with us this time we also had this wonderful deep bench of excellent understudies who covered the roles in new york and so a few of them are stepping in as well and know the roles intimately and they get a chance to shine because we all felt like stewards of this story um Mm -hmm. it was a real sense of community among this cast and i'm thrilled to see um, everyone get their turn at bat if you will yeah didn't you also write a a a christmas carol play or a a version am i remembering right Yeah, I thank you for remembering that. I have written a regular version of A Christmas Carol, which I've titled A Merry Little Christmas Carol, uh, which has been done at theaters around the country. And in fact, it's happening in particular at Virginia Stage right now. 
uh, a wonderful, beautiful theater in Norfolk, Virginia, where I head next month to direct Dial M for Murder in mm -hmm. keeping with the mystery theme. Um, and they're having great success with it. And um, my big hope is that someday these two plays will be done in rep at a theater. So A Christmas Carol and Sherlock Carol, which is its sort of sequel, mm -hmm. could uh, happen with the same cast on the same stage somewhere. And that's my great hope. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that'd be great. You could have yeah. one really long play at night or something. <laughs> well, you'd alternate nights and buy okay. a ticket to one and get half price of the other. And oh, see okay. The I see. Between the two, hopefully. And, I yeah. see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta, gotta uh, hook them in with one. And <laughs> well, I never would have gotten the idea to write a Sherlock Carol had I not figured out how to write my own adaptation of A Christmas Carol because I love the Dickens book so much. Mm -hmm. But I had to figure out what I wanted to say uh, by making it a play because there have been so many adaptations of it. And I became really um, intricately, like really, really deeply and fell in love with the language of Dickens' Christmas Carol. And it stuck with me so that the format of it and some of the some of the narration could find its way into the Sherlock Holmes mystery, which is based on Doyle's only Christmas story, though it's set slightly after Christmas, The Blue Carbuncle, The Adventure of the Blue Carbuncle. So with those two authors' texts in mind, I could fashion my own play of combining their writing styles and create a new plot and a new way of looking at these characters, if you will. Yeah. Now, are you... What I guess what drew you to use Sherlock Holmes? Was it are you a fan or is it just because I am? Yeah, time? yeah. As a kid, I my dad took me down to a place called Theater Eighty on Second Avenue in the in the East Village uh, when I was about ten years old to see uh, some second run movies. Um, back when you could only see a movie on TV uh, in the afternoon when it was yep. run, or maybe you could you could rent it at the video store. But I fell in love with those Sherlock Holmes movies, Basil Rathbone movies. And then I got um, I got the complete adventures of Sherlock Holmes as a book and I devoured them and I loved them. I really did. Mm -hmm. And I have gone around the country, as I told you before, I love mysteries and I've gone around the country directing some of them at, um, at wonderful theaters around the United States. And I also see how A Christmas Carol sometimes drags in new people who might not have otherwise have gone to see to to the theater yeah. and very often christmas carol as i often say is is somebody's first exposure to live performance and sometimes that's the same way with a murder mystery there's a different audience that comes to it so um i jokingly had told you i think of it as the reese's peanut butter cup um play where it's two great tastes that taste great together yeah. that i put these two things together to try and see if they could become a new way of looking at characters you already thought you knew and have a new kind of um version of a Christmas Carol, as well as a new kind of version of a Sherlock Holmes story. Mm -hmm. And it should be highly theatrical and fun and feel like something that you can only see in the theater um, with great actors bringing it to life in a way that excites an audience's imagination, you know, mm -hmm. and that's what we're doing up at the playhouse. Yeah. Um, I, I, I like this idea because one of the, you know, if there's one thing I, and I, and I think a Christmas Carol is, pretty much perfect but the, the the what i want to know is what happens to scrooge afterwards and i i think your play kind of explores that a bit it does yeah yeah i you know as i i i love to talk about it is that we really only get to see scrooge at the end of that 
book and in any version on whether it's Muppets or Alistair Sim or anyone else doing their version of A Christmas Carol, Mm -hmm. we see him at the end for the last five minutes having transformed into the best version of himself. He becomes as good a man uh, as this good old city ever knew, as Dickens wrote. Mm -hmm. And as he walks around town and people are stunned to see him no longer, you know, looking at them and saying bah humbug and being cruel and mean and seeing him changed and knowing that he has um, the time to give give of himself and to be of service to others, you realize, I wonder what happened after this story. Over. We know that Tiny Tim lives, mm-hmm. but how else did Scrooge manage to change people's lives? And did he actually keep Christmas in his heart all year as he said he would? And I like to think that, of course, he did. And so in my play, what we find is in the ensuing years, he gave it all away and did anything he could to help. I always like to think that at the end of Christmas Carol, Scrooge doesn't stand at that tombstone and say, I, I want to go back. I want to live because he's afraid of death. It's because he actually realizes that the lessons the ghosts have taught him is that he had wasted his time on earth, that he did not do what he was meant to do, which is to be of service to other people. That's what we should all do is to, to help each other and live our best lives and be our best versions of ourselves as hard as it is sometimes. And I'd like to think in Chris in Sherlock Carol, what we find is that Sherlock Holmes is now feeling a little Scrooge-like himself. But um, when he investigates Scrooge's life, what he's really trying to find out is how can a man change? How does a person really change? And everyone says, well, you know, he had this uh, Christmas where he was visited by ghosts. And, and of course, Sherlock Holmes is the last person who would believe in ghosts because mm-hmm. in The Adventure of the Sussex Vampire, he says, no ghosts need apply. And he would never believe in something like that. Now, of course, Arthur Conan Doyle believed in plenty of things like spiritualism and yeah. the afterlife and all sorts. But uh, Holmes is a detective and a scientist in many regards. So to put a character who doesn't believe in things like that up against one of the most famous characters of all time, from the best ghost story, uh, who does believe in ghosts, is a, a great clash of styles, but also a wonderful chance for them to learn for each other. I've said as a joke, I don't really feel like it's sometimes I wrote the play because the characters, if you love them and you know them well, they start to tell you what they would say if they were to meet. Um, and I jokingly said that it, in inviting these characters into the same play is like having a dinner party where you invite people from different social circles that you like, but you hope they get along. And I was so pleased to find out that a grown up Tiny Tim and a Dr. Watson and maybe an Irene Adler and a couple of Fezziwigs and an old Joe from Christmas Carol and a, a Mrs. Dilber, they could all meet and exist in the same world rather effortlessly. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, speaking of old, old Joe, I saw I, on your social media, you had posted a picture of an Easter egg <laughs> Um, and uh, it took me a while looking at the picture, but I finally caught it uh, that, to another uh, famous mystery <laughs> film. Yeah. Well, you know, from fun. A Christmas Carol, that old Joe owns a, a junk shop where uh, in the future, Scrooge sees Mrs. Dilber, his maid, go to hawk his belongings at old Joe's. Uh, old Joe makes a good appearance in uh, a Sherlock Carol as Sherlock goes to look for a clue at this uh, at this junk shop. And um, so on stage, we've dressed the set so that old Joe has a, a, a lot of tchotchkes and nonsense in his cart. 
And um, I happen to have in my bookcase uh, a, a replica of the Maltese Falcon, and I place it on stage because if you know the book, the Maltese Falcon, Casper Gutman's been looking for the Maltese Falcon and has traded hands over the years so many times uh, over the over the generations. And I like to think that in 1894, old Joe had no idea that he actually had this valuable thing in his possession. So I brought it up from my home and threw it on the set, and only an eagle-eyed uh, audience member will see it. But it gave me a lot of personal chuckles to enjoy That's great. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my uh my wife uh, and my kids uh somewhat, but they've been involved with a uh community theater um about 20 minutes from us. Uh really oh. really great. Um uh, this past year uh or this year they did Little Women and my wife oh, got, my wife got to play uh Aunt March and oh, of course she, she loved it. She loved it. Um but uh the, the director, the guy and the guy who runs the um the company he uh he loves putting little easter eggs in from his past shows and so they'll they'll be uh if, if you can work it in there's a suitcase from the music man uh, i love know, it it's stuff like it. that it's just it's just funny well i'll tell you there's another easter egg in the play but um it would be hard pressed to find it unless he came up on stage to really look closely but there's a scene in the sherlock carol where um holmes goes backstage at a theater into the dressing room of the Countess of Morcar, who's just given a concert. And among her theater paraphernalia, we, um, we've we you know put a lot of posters and things on it. But then there's one poster from the actual Westport Country Playhouse itself, as if she played there, even though the Playhouse didn't open until 1931. But it gave us a lot of uh, joy to put it up there because the Playhouse yeah. itself has an incredible um, history. Um, and I just want to tell you, if, if you don't mind, I just want to tell you a little bit about it because oh, um, in, yeah. the, in the nearly 20 years that I've been involved there, I arrived there as an actor in a wonderful play called Journey's End by R.C. Sheriff, a World War One play, and then got to play David Copperfield and uh, oh, Phileas Fogg and, uh, and Around the World in 80 Days and a lot of other great roles. And then eventually my um, friend Annie Keefe, who ran the Script in Hand series where we did readings, handed that over to me. And I've been running the Script in Hand series where we do some great plays that sometimes don't get done anymore and even some new plays also. And we've cultivated a great audience. But it's also because people love coming to the Playhouse to participate in the history of the Playhouse. And uh Right there off of I-95, or if you're taking the Merritt, it's not that far right off the highway. It's this beautiful old structure that looks like a big old barn. And although it was renovated um, 25 years ago now, or 20 years ago, it uh, it really still maintains the aura and a lot of the history of its original structure, because it was built as a tannery in the 1800s. And in 1931, having sat there for about 10 years dormant, it was purchased for a song and turned into a theater, which went on what was called the Straw Hat Circuit. Uh, in those days when the Broadway theaters closed down in the 1930s because there was no air conditioning, a lot of the stars went on um, a summer tour uh, of, of plays. So the Kate Playhouse up in Dennis, Massachusetts, and in Maine, the Ogunquit Playhouse, they share some of the same posters that we have lining the walls at the Westport Country Playhouse with some of the best names that you'll i'm just going to read them off and a litany of the best names of the last hundred years of broadway and hollywood from kitty carlisle and burgess meredith and ruth gordon and henry fonda gene kelly and um paul robeson tyrone power uh, thornton wilder actually played there uh and uh, the author of our town which was then later done uh, at the playhouse with paul newman playing the role of the stage manager of production which moved on to broadway um 
But in the 50s, there was John Forsyth and Ava Gabor and Imogene Coca, Lillian Gish, um, Groucho Marx played there, Basil Rathbone, Joan Fontaine, um, Tallulah Bankhead, the great Teresa Wright, who I had the great pleasure as a young actor of meeting also, uh, Joel Gray, Liza Minnelli, mm -hmm. um, Cicely Tyson, uh, wonderful Barbara Bel Geddes, I'm trying to think of Kira DeLay, um, uh, Shirley Booth. I'm just trying to think of them all. Um, Art Carney and Jose Ferrer. And um, I say um, Jane Alexander, Vincent Price for the yeah. horror fans out there. Yeah. Uh, Shelley Winters and Christopher Walken, who I had the pleasure of being on stage with there myself. Um, it really has been an extraordinary parade of the greatest actors. And even in recent times, just this past year, we've had some of um, Broadway's best uh, recently up there from Andre DeShields to Tony winner Beth Level and Tony winner Celia Keenan-Bolger and Deborah Monk, um, Kate Burton. It, it has been a place where actors feel at home and they love to come there. And we're so lucky because the Playhouse is in, in a beautiful structure. When I say it was renovated, Joanne Woodward was the artistic, artistic director when I arrived there 20 years ago. And she used to joke and say, well, it's the easiest thing in the world for me to raise funds when I say you want to have lunch with my husband. And then Paul Newman would show up and say, now write us a check. But they did a beautiful job um, renovating the Playhouse. And in the back of the theater, when you walk in on stage from the, the hallways, from the dressing rooms, there are still the original floorboards from the Playhouse for the last hundred years. And I remember Joanne Woodward telling me as a young actor, put your both feet here. And now before you walk out there on stage and now every one of those actors that I just mentioned will like theater gods do, will watch over you and get you through the performance. And anyone who plays there feels that great history. And um, to now be in the position of being artistic director, which was Joanne's job there following um, our wonderful recent um, and retiring artistic director, Mark Lameless, we've had such an incredible history there that uh, as my first show of this era, to be able to put a Sherlock Carol in something that I wrote and directed feels particularly special to me. And to have all my friends come up and do it and to have it sell out this week feels like we're re-energizing the place and keeping um, keeping it going. We're just a a, a link in a, in a chain that we hope goes much farther down the, the years than uh, mm -hmm. we can possibly imagine and will just be a fun memory someday. But as we try to keep it going, like all theaters, it feels like a struggle. It feels like we're, you know, pushing a boulder up a hill, but there's an excitement about putting um, a Sherlock Carroll at the Westport Country Playhouse and all the things we have coming up um, at the Playhouse too. Yeah, I, I think, you know, as, as we get more and more technology obsessed, <laughs> uh, you know, there is that danger of, of, we risk losing such places like that, you know? Yeah. Well, it's, it is hard art. Like you think about it, um, you know, I sometimes feel that nowadays the theater, what, you know, since the Greeks, they've been saying the theater is dead. Right. Mm. But it always, it's a resilient institution always comes back and there's so much competing for an audience's attention these days. But I sometimes feel like the theater feels more special than ever before because it is the last non-downloadable thing that we can do uh, to create an audience. I go to the movie theater now, not not as often as I used to, obviously, you know, mm -hmm. but everyone's sitting on their phones in the movie theater and the glow of people's phones is distracting and it makes it really awful. But when we go to the live performance at the theater, 
we say, turn your cell phones off and lean into this and have an experience with everyone around you. Mm-hmm. And I'm feeling that even as we struggle to get people back after the pandemic, because we all got used to sitting at home, I'm feeling that now people appreciate it more sitting with other people in the dark, laughing, yeah. gasping, hearing a story well told by good actors. <laughs> and it feels more special than it used to in some ways. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, we uh, see that the community theater I was telling you about they yeah they did uh, a couple months ago they did um a play version of uh lend me a tenor i love lend me a tenor sure yeah yeah i guess it was a musical first or something or yeah and and there's another new version lend me a soprano um that ludwig has rewritten as well yeah but um my wife wasn't in that one but we went just to watch it and a lot of her friends were in it and it it was a blast like you're saying just to have people around you laughing and and enjoying that, that shared experience and something about it being a live performance, you know, the director, he likes to come out and encourage the audience to be involved in, you know, and, um, and then watching how the actors on stage start feeding off the energy of the crowd. Yeah. It's, it's, there's nothing like it. There really is. It really is nothing like it. And, you know, particularly a lot of professional theaters have pay what you will nights or discounts for seniors or for military or for student rush on the day of, Although it is, seems like an expensive thing to do sometimes, there are ways at theaters just like ours at Westport we do this. You know, there are ways in which you can get tickets and make it a habit of coming that won't break the bank too. Um, even in New York, I find I've walked up on Broadway to a window and said, "Do you have anything on the day of that's left?" And you can get a reasonable ticket for something that would have otherwise been very expensive. The theater feels sometimes like it's a rich man's sport, but it doesn't have to be. And that's why I also love that community theaters take. They're, you know, actors who belong to a community and then their friends show up and realize coming together is an extraordinary feeling. And, you know, I think I think people people need that sense of camaraderie. Yeah. And and just for what my my wife has experienced, you know, she has been able to make some friends yeah. through that that she just become so close with and would never have even known them. I mean, they they live 20 minutes from us and she probably would never have met them if they hadn't had this shared. Well, standing experience. on a stage can be a terrifying thing. And when you, someone else has looked in your eyes and you've done a play together is a bond yeah. like no other. But I also find that people go to the theater and they talk in a lobby and people make friends. Uh, or even if they come back to the theater, they say, Hey, I saw you here last time. It's also a way of connecting and it just takes, you know, getting out there and doing it. But I think pe- once people do, they recognize it's like a muscle that you keep exercising. It's a wonderful thing to to keep going and find live performance as a way of connecting with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I um, I also do a, a, a another podcast where I talk yeah. to authors and things. But uh, one of the questions I like to ask them is, "Do you have any advice for new writers?" So for you. Um, do you have any advice for you know, somebody's thinking, you know, I might like to do acting or writing stage plays. What what advice would you have for him? Well, it's um, if you're trying to make a living at it, it can be such a brutal business, of course. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you can think of it also as trying to exercise your creative passions and find a way to do it, um, you, you inevitably, if that's what you're tapped on the shoulder to do, you're going to find a way. It doesn't always turn out to be the way you thought it would. But uh, it, it is out there if you really pursue it. Um, for a, a writer, particularly a playwright, I like to say, you know, look around at what's needed right now. What theater is looking to produce, what kind of theater is looking to produce the kind of play that you want to write? 
And then look at how can you make it economical? How can you make it affordable for a theater to do? How can you give it a title that might entice people to come in? How can you figure a way to make sure that um, your play will find its audience? Um, everybody in the world has an idea for something and they always say, you know what you should do or something to every writer who um, you know wants to sit down and start typing. But really you have to figure out what it is you want to say through a piece and then figure out how to make sure that it is, if it's a piece of theater, how it's affordable to produce. Um, and then get it into the right hands and be willing to face a lot of rejection uh, as you send it out. For actors, there's no, it's so sad to say this, but like you have to, unlike a writer, you can't just sit down and write. You have to actually find a stage to do it. And so you have to put yourself out there. You have to constantly keep auditioning and take a class and even sometimes make your own work if it needs to satisfy you that way. Um, but tenacity and perseverance and a little head smart of saying, what is it that's needed and how can I fulfill that need can often um, uh, be the key to getting your work done. I see that in my, in my daughter. She, a couple years ago, when they first heard about this play, they were, it was right after the pandemic, I think, they were auditioning for uh, Beauty and the Beast. And so oh. my wife and Grace went to a um, try out, but she really didn't want to. My, my daughter didn't, you know, she's like, I don't know, because <laughs> she, she just didn't know what it was. But then when she, she tried out and she got a part in the chorus and um, both my wife and her did, but uh, you know, it just, she just got the bug, you know, and now yeah. she's, she's been, she got to play in uh, the sound of music they did last year. She got to play one of the Von Trapp kids. Uh, and then she's been involved in her school play. And I was telling you beforehand, she's now involved in uh, uh, speech. Uh, what do they call it? Uh, forensics, I guess is uh, yeah, yeah. the term. Yeah. She, so she's involved with that now. And she and her, her friend, they're, they both sing really well. So they're for their uh, speech meet, they're doing a song from the, the Little Women, Women musical. I love it. That's great. Yeah, it's it, but she, Gracie's telling me, she's like, Dad, you're going to cry. It's the sad song. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. I'll, I'll fortify myself. <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. My wife is a very good singer. She's a Broadway singer. She's been in a lot mm -hmm. of Broadway musicals. And I can tell you that um, she she kind of winces when even she hears me sing in the shower. So I might not be able to sing very well, but it doesn't stop me from trying. And there part of that is like, you know, if you feel like you got to do it, you're going to find a way. But no one's ever going to mistake me for, um, you know, a beautiful singer. But I have to say, like, there is... If you have, you know, if you, like your daughter, um, you know, she's got a talent for it and she wants to put it to use in some other ways. She's going to find a way to do it, which mm -hmm. is, you know, it's great to hear how that, that passion keeps moving. We, I don't know, we, we've got a good, it's a small community of, of uh, theater. And where is it? Where exactly is it? We're in rural Iowa. So the, the town, like we live in a town of about 700 people. Right. Next to a town of a, little more than that and then where the community theater is is a town about 20 minutes up the interstate uh and it's a little bit of a bigger town but um you know a couple thousand people but you know they make it work they make it work and and um the the guy who's running that he's he teaches high school drama all that um as his main job and he just loves the arts so much you know he's he's doing this community theater he's well, it is infectious. Yeah. Yeah. As it, you know, someone, it's funny. Um, it, there's really also no exact way to 
to do to become a theater artist uh, everyone think like no one really knows how to become a director mm-hmm. um there are programs you could study or you can find yourself working at it and in the field you know our theater as a professional theater at the Westport Country Playhouse is um filled with some of the greatest greatest people we can get from New York but the funny thing is there's also people who you find and you go this is you're calling. I hate to tell you, this is it. And then you throw them in the room with people who've been doing it for decades uh, professionally. Mm-hmm. And it's a great lineage to pass it down to somebody. And for that theater teacher that you're mentioning, who loves the theater to find people who might not have done it before also and say, try it, find out what you can learn from it and see if it's mm-hmm. in your heart to do. Uh, it really is something that people who love it share with each other and try and bring up the next people because the theater's ephemeral when the play goes it's over, right? Mm-hmm. So you got to keep keep the skills alive and you keep the memories of it alive by passing it along to other people. I like I like to watch, you know, opening night performance, but I also love the closing night performance because yeah. Uh, especially as I get to know the the people that behind the characters, you know, you can see the emotion in their face that that almost at times sadness, but joy, you know, it's like this is the last night, you know, this yeah, yeah. it'll all be done and yeah, yeah. And that doesn't change whether you're doing a high school play or you're on Broadway. Right. Um, that is that is the inner child that all actors uh, keep going. Uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes a play can be exhausting and you go, oh, thank God it's over. But <laughs> overall, you're looking for the next one if you love the theater. So. That's right. That's right. Here before uh, we can uh, wrap up here, but I suppose we should talk a little bit about Christmas before I go. But uh, what, do you, what do you got coming up this year for Christmas? Well, I'm fortunate that I'm here. We'll be, I'll be up at the playhouse all the way through next week with Sherlock Carroll doing the mm-hmm. curtain speech. And although as a director, I uh, now that the play will be open, I don't really like to watch it. I might sit out in the lobby or go to the bar at the theater <laughs> with some <laughs> of the other people who work there because uh, I just get too nervous while the audience is there. Um, but I'll poke my head in. Uh, but the, you know, my kid's school wraps up this week and there's a Christmas assembly uh on Friday that I'll get to go to. And my mom and dad were in their 80s and my sister and her two children are here in New York City also. And so uh, we have great traditions of Christmas Eve and Christmas Day that uh, we've had every year of my life that we are fortunate and blessed enough to uh, participate in again this year. And um, I haven't quite finished art, my Christmas shopping, because I've been so busy with the play. And I just saw on Amazon that uh, it's pretty hard to get anything delivered by Christmas now. So I will be hitting the malls or going down to Columbus Circle to the uh, <laughs> on the subway to the holiday fair and trying to make sure that I, I get a couple of those last minute presents going. What about you? I for somehow I didn't wait to the last minute this year. Got a boy. <laughs> so I, maybe I'm learning the lesson, but. <laughs> But yeah, my my son, uh, he's going to be home from college uh, for a couple of days anyway. So uh, we'll get to have him home for Christmas. Um, then Fantastic. my great. wife's my wife's parents are going to be here, um, and I I love spending time with them. So uh, yeah, yeah, it's just going to be another quiet Christmas. We don't really do much. Hey, Art, I asked you this once where I think did do you generally get what you want when you ask for what you want for Christmas? Do you get what you want or yeah? yeah. yeah. Yep, Usually, yeah. yeah. Do you make a um, list? We we do. do you put it yep. out there. I, oh, I'm yeah. even at 45. I still make my list. Yeah. yeah. This year, although uh, you know, this year I was really like, maybe I'm getting old enough now. I don't know, but you know, just I don't know. I I'm just pretty happy. You know, family's gonna be home and yeah. all that. But so so my wife, uh, I've got a 
a book list on Amazon, you know, that I like books I want to buy or read, you know, I'll, I've just been making a list. And so she's like, I'll, I'll just go shopping off of this. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> that works. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. But yeah, we're, we're looking for just a quiet, uh, quiet week and perfect enjoying family. Yeah. Well, for a man who loves Christmas and knows a thing or two about how to celebrate Christmas, it sounds like you're doing it right. Um, uh, right after this, I, I've got plans to start my, uh, yearly rereading of a Christmas Carol. So all right. Going to get in the mood here. <laughs> well, you know, I'll, if you want, um, uh, send me an email and I'll send you a PDF of a Sherlock Carol, the play. Yeah. And you can read that as well. And, um, oh, I'd love to. Yeah. I'd be yeah. happy to have you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm... then hopefully maybe that theater up the road someday will do it too. And you can actually see it on stage. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I was thinking, I, I don't, they don't usually do a, a winter play, mm -hmm. but maybe I can twist their arm. So <laughs> <laughs> I like your, well, you know, what's funny is actually, a theater reached out to me and they said, we want to do it in July using our Christmas Carol set because and do Christmas in July because they thought of it mm -hmm. more as a mystery play that set at uh, Christmas time than a Christmas play. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that'd be good. You come home from the beach or something and you you go, tonight we have tickets to see a, a play where a bunch of people are wearing Victorian Christmas you know, outfits and you know, <laughs> I'd get a kick out of that. Yeah. Well, hey, Christmas in July is a big thing in the Christmas community. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, yep. <laughs> Sounds that, like that would work. Yeah. <laughs> All righty. Well, Mark, best of luck to you again. Um, can't wait Thanks, to see man. what you got coming next. And Thanks. And uh, uh, I guess, as they say, break a leg, right? <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, if anyone who listens to your podcast is in the tri-state area and wants to come to the Westport Country Playhouse, you can find um, the last remaining seats available at westportplayhouse.org. Uh, we run this week through the 23rd, and um, we've got some of the best actors from New York up at this beautiful old theater, and we hope to see you there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And if you, if you go, tell them I said hi. So. <laughs> <laughs> You got it, Art. Yeah. Thanks All always right. for spreading word about the play and for spending time with me. I appreciate it every year. You bet. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, it, anything to help out, I'm glad to do it. So. Oh, thanks, man. Great. All right. Well, you, you guys have a Merry Christmas. You too. Merry Christmas, Art. Be well. Thank you so much for listening to the Cozy Christmas Podcast. If you would like to help support the show, the best thing that you can do is to share it on your social media account share it with a friend, leave us a rating and a review because that really does help get the word out. I could not do this without you guys and I appreciate it all so much. If you would like to help us out in a financial way, there are several options for you listed in the show notes. You can make a donation on ko-fi.com and if you send me your address, I will send out a Christmas card with a bookmark or sticker as my way of saying thank you. There's also uh, some t-shirts, podcast merchandise, hand-painted ornaments I've done over the uh, this past year. And a special thank you to Karen and Angela, your support, not just your financial support, but your encouragement, your positivity, your absolute joy over what I do here really helps keep the podcast moving. And it keeps me inspired to keep doing what I'm doing. So thank you and others who have given so generously this past year. Thank you. And until next time, let's remember to honor Christmas in our hearts and try to keep it all the year. Have a very Merry Christmas.